I'm Holly. I'm Emily. I'm Deanna. And this is Confessions of a Farm Wife. Well, good day, everyone. Welcome to Confessions of a Farm Life. This is a little bit of a different edition or version. Uh, we've already done this podcast once, but due to technical difficulties, we're doing kind of an abbreviated version, meaning we're missing a farm life, Holly. That's right. That's right. We're, we're so good we're doing it twice, right? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, these things happen. So I figure there's yeah. something to be said for having however many of these we've done now, a dozen or so, and this is our first technical glitch. It means we're doing something right, I think. That's right. That's right. <laughs> So we can talk about GMOs today, and um, we can talk with Emily later. You know, here it is. Summer is in full force. Once Fourth of July happens on the farm, it's like, boom, summer's done, and we're talking back to school. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've kind of got this crazy month of July going where we're going to, we've got the Fourth of July, we've got the 4-H general show, we go to Simital Junior Nationals, we go to our county fair, I go to a big ag media summit deal, and then it's August. And then, like you said, it's August and then it's school. So, yeah, it's going to go by in a hurry. And I know that this month is also busy on the Prairie Farmer and Farm Progress side of things because you've taken on a new role, and with that has come a new special project. Is that right? That is correct. I went back to work full-time this winter, and I went back as a um, special projects editor for Farm Progress. So I've been with Prairie Farmer as an associate editor for, I don't know how long, 15, 16 years. And then when I went back to full-time, I'm now working and doing stories that might go across several of our magazines or that, you know, editors in other states can maybe take part of that and say, hey, I could use this here or I can put, you know, farmers from my state, you know, interview them on, you know, and just incorporate it. And so we're not sort of recreating the wheel over and over and over (laughs) in every state. So, yeah, and so my first big story for that was to look at GMO labeling and what's happening across the country there and how that can affect farmers. Well, and so you've spent really the better part of June interviewing experts or quote-unquote experts. Is that right? <laughs> yes, actually. If uh, you're a subscriber to any of the Farm Progress magazines across the country, you've likely gotten your July issue, and there may be a story in there about GMO labeling that I did. And, yeah, I spent a lot of time talking to, you know, Different people, experts in food science and human nutrition, ag and food economists, farmers, people with different activist organizations, which was interesting. People who, especially out in the Northeast, who, you know, there was legislation has been passed in Vermont and signed by the governor there that would require GMOs to be labeled, GMO food products to be labeled there. And so talking to some of those groups out there that had really been active in in fighting that on, on both sides. You know, Holly, when you talk about the people that you interviewed, it is so interesting, the differences of opinions, the differences in backgrounds. And, you know, one of the activists you visited with just wanted to pretty much deny that it would cost more to label GMO food and also tried to tell you that farmers just didn't have a choice. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, every once in a while you have these conversations where you sort of just can't believe that somebody's actually saying that out loud to you. <laughs> and that's exactly what that conversation was like. I interviewed a woman named Catherine Paul. She was with the um, Organic Consumers Association and I was mistaken when I first called her. I thought they somehow represented organic farmers. They don't at all. You know, it's simply an organic um, interest group. And as I talked to her, we realized what sort of extreme views they have. Um, You know, they were one of the – they were the top financial contributor to the um, GMO labeling campaigns in California and in Washington State. 
and very vehemently want all GMO food products to be labeled. They don't they don't believe there's going to be any cost to labeling. They don't agree with the Cornell University study that says a family of four will pay five hundred, eight hundred dollars more per year under some of the proposed laws. They don't agree with that at all. You know, she's very much of the opinion that, well, it's just a label. They change them all the time. They can just put a label on. <laughs> And, you know, every bit of research and every farmer who's ever grown any, you know, sort of identity preserved crop knows it's not nearly that simple, you know. No. Martin Barber gave a great example. He's a Southern Illinois farmer and happens to be um, president of the National Corn Growers. And he was saying, okay, take Missouri, for example. There are eight states that border Missouri. If I'm a farmer there and I want to sell corn somewhere and every state around me has a different GMO labeling law, a different requirement, that's going to be a nightmare. And and that's not even considering, you know, the, the food manufacturers who have to make a product that they're going to sell in different states. So then they're going to have to have a la- different label for every state. And I think what it comes down to for a group like organic consumers, that's what they want. You know, they want a patchwork of state-by-state labeling laws that makes it completely unworkable for a food manufacturer so that they will ultimately say, well, we'll just we just want to use non-GMO ingredients and then GMOs will go away. Which is exactly what she said. I asked her, you know, what's your ideal world here? And she's like, one without GMOs completely. So, Well, and it just kind of blows your mind because, you know, we here in the United States are so blessed to not have to spend a lot of money on food and to have choice. Yes, and she would say the same thing, but in the next breath wants to take away farmer's choices. You know, let's limit the farmer's choices in what they can grow. You know, if, if she would get her way, it would limit the choices the consumer has in the grocery store because now your choices are a more expensive food and that's it. Well, they've done a really good job in convincing certain sects of the population uh, that GMOs should just go away and then that is going to be the trend. We have a landlord who informed us that, you know, after this year, only conventional crops will be grown on his ground because he thinks that genetically modified uh, corn and soybeans is going to go away. And so, you know, the shift is going to be more towards organic and more towards conventional, and that's where he thinks the price is going to be. So, you know, farmers are already learning how to adapt because of landlords who get the wrong information at the wrong time. Right. And, and where does he live, Dana? He lives in California, actually. And he um, That's a very different never grew- conversation there. It's very different. The farming, agriculture, the landscape there is completely different compared to here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely been a learning experience for us because, you know, trying to, you know, find out what we can grow, what we can't grow, because... Uh, in the bottoms, our neighbors, some have seed corn, some have irrigation systems. You have to consider isolation. You have to think about where that conventional crop can be taken to the elevator. Mm-hmm. You know, that's it's it's going to be a process, but it'll be a learning experience, that's for sure. Yeah, and don't you think, okay, here we are, we're both from, you know, farm families who farm sort of in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, it's not like right. we're sitting outside a large metropolitan area where we could convert to, you know, farmer's market truck crops or whatever, and we could have local foods and whatever. It's not, we're not in that part of the world. And I think there's a lot of people who don't understand that, particularly, you know, some of those conversations I've had online with people, you know, in California or wherever who kind of don't understand why would we ever want to, you know, take corn to the river and put it on a barge and send it around the world. They don't know that that even happened. Well, and, you know, you think about 
the area where we do live, yes, there's Peoria. Yes, there's, you know, Bloomington is only about 45 minutes on the other side of us. But, you know, those are as big as the cities get. And the people there, yes, I'm sure they do go to the farmer's markets. But once you get outside those cities, people aren't going to be willing to pay 5 to $8 for one tomato that they can pay $0.98 cents for at Walmart or Kroger. They're just not going to, you know, people don't have that kind of money in our area. Right. And I think people just don't have an awareness of what a global market agriculture is. Right. You know, our prices are hinging on what's happening in China, what's happening with the weather in Brazil. Um, you know, some of the conversations I had with um, some of the Chicago field moms earlier this spring, you know, they just had no idea. They they understood it and appreciated it once I explained it, but it never crossed their mind that, you know, we're dealing with a global, um, a global industry, really. It's not just here on my farm or what the people in town will pay. It's it's what, you know, China and India are willing to pay. Well, and I think we as a country need to be proud of the fact that there is a global demand for United States agricultural products. You think about our population, and there's only 2% of us that are involved in production agriculture, and then you look at the demand from the world on that 2% of the population. That's something to be proud of, and I just feel like we need to do a better job of supporting that. Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I think that's another part of this conversation about labeling. You know, a lot of people will like to throw out, well, every other country in the world labels GMOs. Well, that's, A, that's not exactly true. And um, sometimes they'll want to say, well, every other country has banned it. Well, that's not true either, <laughs> you know. And, and, and also to try and make the comparison that in Europe, um, you know, it's been – they label everything there and it's just fine, so why can't we do that? Well, that's – it's an entirely – you know, it's apples and oranges. Um, you know, they they – made a political decision, not a food safety decision, because um, scientific organizations and European commissions all over um, the world have said, yeah, we agree GMOs are safe. You know, the European decision to label and to not grow there was a political one, not, you know, not a science or um, safety-based decision. So it's a very different argument to say, okay, yeah, well, you know, in Europe they can label everything. Why can't we? Well, that's because we're, you know, growing a massive percentage of our crops as GMO foods already. So, you, you know, you're trying to turn back 20 years of, of production and, and say it's not going to cost anything. It's, it's not the same. It isn't the same. And, you know, I know that your interviewing uh, experience took you to other experts, too. And I think that you visited with Jason Lusk, and that was pretty interesting, too. Is that right? Yeah. Jason Lusk is a, um, I don't know if you call him a food economist or an ag economist um, at Oklahoma State University. And I heard him speak on a Food Dialogues panel, let's say maybe a year ago, through um, some of the Food Dialogues panels that um, USFRA puts together. And he was just this fascinating voice of reason, and he's one of these people who, you know, he will talk about, okay, if we're going to label this, then what happens? Then what happens? Then what happens after that? Like, let's take this all the way down the line and, and look at the realities here. And um, and then and he's written a book as well called The Food Police, which is a fascinating read and, and really looks at some of the politics behind um, some of those activist movements and, and then takes that on down the line. Well, if we label, then what happens? And, and what happens to a market in that sort of situation, and how do you, how do food manufacturers respond, and and what are the practical implications of a label? And so that was interesting. And he also talked a lot about, okay, so in Washington State when they were um, looking at a GMO label, and that was on their, I think it was a ballot initiative, 
And he said they compared um, grocery store scanner data to look at what people were buying and not buying during that time period. And they were looking at soy milk, which has a you know, an advertisement and a label on it as having non-GM ingredients. And he noticed, or, you know, what the, the data showed them, that as that labeling campaign, you know, continued in that state and as people learned more about GMOs and what they were, the, the ballot initiative ultimately failed and their choices in the marketplace um, mirrored that. So as they got more information, they were open to the information and it caused them to be less concerned about biotechnology to the point that they voted against the biotech or the yeah the biotech labeling law, and they bought fewer non-GM products in the grocery store. Well, you know, and that just goes to show you that you know here we are in a society where I feel like people get their news from Facebook, they get it from Twitter. They're not going to do a lot of research about something unless they're poked and prodded to. They want it served to them. Um, they want it now, that instant gratification. But the more you educate someone on an issue, you know, it's amazing to me how many people have, you know, so many examples like that have happened, right. especially when we do start talking about GM labeling. Right. It's really heartening, I think, because, like, if you spend much time on the Internet, you sort of start to feel like, you know, all is lost. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the crazy people are going to take over the world. <laughs> this is the way it's going to be. But, And I think what, what Lusk's um, research showed was that when people are forced to put a dollar <laughs> behind whatever they say they believe, um, it really changes those choices. And, um, you know, he said one of the things they talk about is hypothetical bias. So, you know, if somebody's asked, hey, what do you think about this? Um, they're much more likely to say that they're willing to pay a premium for a product than they are to actually pay that, about, like, twice as much. <laughs> so there was a New York Times survey here a while back showing that 90% of Americans think genetically modified foods should be labeled. And he said, you know, without knowing how that question was asked or how it was posed, but he said what they found is people are twice as likely to say yes to something like that as they are not when willing to pay for it. Right. Have to put the dollar to it. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I know that you also visited with an expert at Iowa State, and she pretty much said the same thing Jason did. Is that right? Oh, I loved her. She was so funny. Her name is Ruth McDonald, and she is the Iowa State professor and chair of food science and human nutrition. And she was just sort of, like, exasperated with this whole conversation. <laughs> you know? So here's the, you know, the food scientist who's just really emphasizing it's safe. We know it's safe. Billions of meals have been served in the last 20 years and not a single documented case of a problem or an allergy or anything. There's never been any illness associated. There's no health risk. There's no evidence of long-term effects. And it was just really interesting talking to her because she could just tell she was just kind of worn out by the whole conversation <laughs> and making the same point over and over, which, and she's right. She's absolutely right. It's so interesting because, you know, we are plugged into, you know, women who are great advocates and and bloggers. And Katie Pratt, one of our dear friends, recently published a blog about how, yes, we grow GM crops in the field, but I do have some non-GMO things in my garden, too. You know, and I think that just goes to show you that there's choice out there and that even people on the farm can celebrate both and, right. and practice both. Right. I loved that blog that she wrote because she was referring to, um, I guess she was Skyped in on a Larry King live show last winter. And um, John and I spent some time watching that because she very graciously included some links to that show, um, even though she felt like she had done a terrible job. And 
we were watching it thinking, my word, she was put in such a difficult position. So, like, yes. here's Larry King and his experts, and I'm saying that with great big air quotes. <laughs> because <laughs> his experts was Mary Lou Henner, who's like an actress, and oh um, Curtis Stone, who's a chef. He's the big celebrity chef who got chocolate milk kicked out of schools, and he was the big pink slime guy and, you know, clearly not based on what, like, Ruth McDonald would talk about with food science. Um, he's handsome and people pay attention to him. And, sure. And they had um, a guy, and I can't remember his name, but he's a former basketball player. And I gathered that he owned a vineyard or something in California. So, so he's a, an expert. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So there's the three of them who are very anti, um, anti-biotech, anti-GMOs. And then they did um, include a... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he's a great um, uh, microbiologist at UCLA, and he's you know with their works with their um, biotechnology institute there, and he is like Mr. Facts, like he is the one that you could look at and say, yes, he's an actual expert. Like he understands what DNA is, he understands how it behaves, he understands what's actually in food and not in food, and and then they skyped in Katie Pratt from her farm in Illinois, and then proceeded to let these three celebrity people sort of attack her. And they were trying to say that she um, was a hypocrite because they grow, you know, um, GMOs in their field to send around the world or wherever into the marketplace, but then in her own garden that she doesn't. And poor Katie's trying to point out that she would grow that in her garden if those seeds were available to her, but they aren't <laughs> because right. the gardener not growing it on a commercial scale. So... They just did not understand, and Katie tried to explain it, and it was not a setup that lent itself to facts. We'll put it that way. <laughs> well, you know, and I just think that it's going to take communication. I think it's going to take more people in agriculture standing up and saying, hey, you know, this is what we do and why we do it, and it's not to give you cancer, it's not to poison you, it's because we're feeding and fueling and clothing the world. And, you know, when we talk about that, I know that this is something that you've really delved into, and it's just such an interesting topic. Yeah, and I think that was part of, um, you know, our impetus at Farm Progress to publish this series was to say, you know, here's what farmers need to know about this. Here is how it can affect you if the activists get their way. Here's what you can do. Here's ways you can be more informed. And all that sorts of information is in the is in the story. And then we're also going to have several items online in the next two weeks as well. So extra stories that weren't in the magazine will be on our websites. Um, and then we're going to publish the entire package of stories as a single story on the website so people can share that if they want to or use that as a reference. So hopefully that will be useful to the farm community. Well, I think it will be useful. And, Holly, you know, what was one of your main takeaways from this whole experience for, for you personally, would you say? I think it was a confirmation for me of something I suspected, which was the overwhelming majority of the science and the people that you talk to who have studied the science show that it's safe, and this is really a key for our world going forward. The people that you hear who don't agree with that are the people like a consumer association who deny that certain facts exist. They deny that certain farmers exist. They deny that the farmer who would make a logical, educated choice to grow GMOs exists. They think he's only there or she is only there because, you know, they don't have any other choice or they've been forced into it by Monsanto or something. Well, Holly, thanks so much for sharing this with us, and 
hopefully soon we will all three of us will reunite and we'll get some more confessions going absolutely we'll get the band back together well until we meet again and emily we miss you that's right waiting to emily